Mike, how are you? It's good to see Hi, you again. Hi, mate. <laughs> I've got a bit more of your adventures to record today. I, I compliment you on your hippie hairdo. My yeah, word. Yeah, oh yeah, look, it's, uh, it's the uh, April showers, bring May flowers approach. <laughs> yes, all right, the age of Aquarius. Yeah, so I was born in England and I spent my early years there and my mother used to put me out in the snow to play. So I grew up quite tough. And this is just after the Second World War. So we were still in wartime rationing. So things like orange juice and eggs were in very short supply. But because my mother and father had a baby boy, we got that sort of thing. So I actually had pretty good nutrition, considering I had spent my formative years in England. At five years old, I sailed over to my grandfather's place in Gibraltar, where we stayed for a year. And my father went to Australia to join the RAAF. Not quite sure what he was in the RAF during the war. But I do know that when he got out of there, he was studying to be an aircraft electrical fitter, which is what he did all the rest of his life. So I can remember actually being in the womb and hearing my father playing the violin and also playing classical music. And I tell you how I know, because I remember coming into awareness with a flash of light in the womb. Yep. And then I remember being in the womb and listening to this music. So I grew up with music imbued in me. Oh, wonderful. And when I was a baby, my father used to go in the lounge room and play the violin. And that's, of course, what inspired me to take it up later on. Yeah. And now, a word from our sponsor, who helps keep these podcasts going. Redpillhosting.com is your one-stop shop to buy your perfect domain name. Then get your own hosting server or buy our easy-to-use website builder from just $8.99 a month. Yes, you heard that right. Just $8.99. Building your own website can feel like a daunting task. Who wants to deal with code anyway? Website Builder makes it simple to create a modern, professional website with no technical knowledge required. Share your passion online. With redpillhosting.com you get responsive mobile design, professional website hosting, rapid page load performance, secure SSL, 24-7 support, and much more. Do you need a shopping cart to go with that? We have just the right one for you. What sort of server do you need to host your website? We can advise you on the best solution for your needs. Choose Linux, Windows, or VPS hosting. Select what type of back-office management system you need, from cPanel, Plesk, or WordPress hosting. No matter what you need, redpillhosting.com is the place to get it. Visit us at redpillhosting.com whenever you need us. So anyway, in 1955, after coming back from Gibraltar, which nothing much happened in Gibraltar except that I played my first game of football, and my grandfather actually bought me a pair of boots and a football, and we used to play on a big hill because he was on the eastern side of Gibraltar down near the lighthouse. So there we are out there playing football, and one day I kicked the football and it went rolling down the hill out into the ocean, and then I probably landed in Morocco where the Moroccans now are very keen footballers, so it's probably all my fault. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> Not really. Anyway, after returning back to England and going to stay at Birmingham, which is a bloody awful place, I still remember that. I broke my finger there. 
Uh, we jumped on a boat, the Aronse, and sailed through the Bay of Biscay, down through the uh, Gibraltar Strait, and into the Mediterranean. Anyway, that was interesting. And then we sailed on east to the uh, Suez Canal, which at that stage was NASA was trying to reclaim the Suez Canal. So as we're sailing through the canal, all the way down, all these damn Arabs were standing on the side of the canal, shaking their fists at us and going, English dogs, and spitting at us. <laughs> that was my introduction to political discord, I would say. But when we reached the end of the canal and we got to Aden, all these little felucca boats came out. Oh, it, sounds like eh? it sounds like a swear word, felucca. Yeah, the felucas, <laughs> no, they're little sailboats. And the Arabs came out selling us things like oranges and mandarins, and we'd never seen these before. So that was a bit of a good experience. And then we sailed on east to Colombo in what was then Ceylon, now is Sri Lanka. And that was where I got my second ride on an elephant. The first one was in the Bristol Zoo when I was quite young. But also I remember I was traveling with my mother around Ceylon and I saw this beggar woman and she had leprosy and her nose was all rotted off. And all you could see was just two holes in there. Ugh, pretty awful <laughs> stuff. All that traveling was opening me up to the whole wide world. And from Sri Lanka, we sailed down the west coast of Australia, across to Melbourne, and then up to Sydney, where we debarked at Sydney, met up with my auntie and uncle and cousins. And then we got on a train and went up to Brisbane, where we stayed at Kangaroo Immigrant Hostel. Only we weren't called immigrants then. We were called New Australians. New, new Australians, yes. Yeah. And I think we need to start doing that for our Australian immigrants here too. Is stop this immigration business because that's a government thing. They yeah. are new Australians. And if we don't welcome them as that, we're going to have problems. Yeah, I agree. New Australians, welcome. Yeah. Anyway, from there, we stayed there for a few weeks and then my father managed to get a house out of the western suburb called Inala. Now, in those days, it was a brand new suburb being built by, I don't know what the company was called, but I know that the people running the company were ex-World War II diggers, and they wanted to provide shelter for refugees from Europe and the war. So when we arrived in Anala, it was a very different place to what it is today. It was full of Western European refugees from places like Poland, Germany, Latvia, Romania, Italy, Greece, and of course the UK, and Holland and all these other places. So I moved into a very polyglot kind of a society. On one side of our house, we had a Scottish family with a young daughter. And on the other side, we had another Dutch family with a young daughter. And then on the back, we had a Scottish family with 12 kids. And <laughs> I didn't get to know the kids on either side of me, but the kids up the back immediately took me into their fold. And they'd been in Australia a couple of years. And they said to me, Oh, because I had this really West Country British accent. Oh, that'd be right. I'm, I'm from the West Country. That's how I used to talk. Seriously? And uh, there's even a song. Where be that blackbird to? I know where he be. They took me under their wing and they said, you can't talk like that, you're in Australia now. So within 12 months, I was speaking Australian. 
And uh, yeah, we used to have a great old time. We had a strip of bush in front of my house, about a kilometre wide, with a creek running through it. And the people were coming down the path to go through the bush. And there was no way to get across the, the little creek. It was only a hop, step and a jump. So one day I built a bridge. Basically, I laid down some logs and put some logs on top of that and then some brush and other logs and built a bridge so that they could walk over. And I used to charge them a penny a, penny a crossing. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the troll under the bridge then? Yeah, that was my first foray into doing business. So I That's guess it was running in the blood. Oh, now tell me this, your bloodline, we're going back, we've got to go back to England, I think, and get connected to that history that you had in your bloodline. And also the language that you were just, the dialect that you were speaking in English sounded a lot to me more like a way I imagine pirates to speak. That's where Long John Silver came from. Yeah, he came from Bristol, just up the road from where I was born. I was born in a little seaside town called Western Supermare. And yes. the Romans named it that because... The, when the tide goes out, it goes out for about a kilometre or something into the Bristol Channel, and it's all mudflats. And if you're out there, maybe you know half a kilometre out, and the tide starts coming in, you better run like hell because it comes in very fast. Well, wow. it's it's interesting because I often quote pirate speak because a lot of us like pirate speak, but it's as though the system has overlaid an admiralty law system on the land, and we be pirates. That's because right. we are bucking the admiralty law system. So in mm. a sense, we be pirates. And I often say, well, raise the flag, raise the flag. And of course, that's our duster, the red one, which you can talk about that later when we come back to Australia. But you've got to go back to your heritage again there. My, my heritage really begins, as far as I know, way back in a town called Chester around the time of Cromwell. Now, I went up to Chester and I was lucky enough to get a, a one-armed guide who took us around Chester Cathedral. Now, our churches to me are just churches. But this guy really knew his stuff. And he pointed out things like up in the rafters, there was the little gargoyles and all sorts of amazing things in this Chester Cathedral. And then we get to the nave, and I'm looking at the plaques on the wall of the people who'd been buried in the nave, and who do I see? Mary and Joseph Holt. Yeah. So I said to him, that's my family name. Is there any history of these people? So they actually had a copy of the Doomsday Book there. And we looked it up, and you could trace my lineage. So it was pretty interesting. So my ancestors went over to Ireland, to Dublin, with the invasion, and eventually they settled in a county called Westmeath. Now, have you ever heard that saying, that's a bit beyond the pale? Yes, now, the Pale was actually an area outside of Dublin, like a border, where all the Brits and the British invaders lived inside that in, in Dublin. Oh, and then if you went outside that area, that was beyond the Pale. You're going beyond the Pale, and that meant you were going into danger, where the Black Irish were. Wow. Yeah. You didn't Black know that Irish. Thing. That's interesting as well. Yeah. They call them the Black Irish. And look at me, I'm Irish, and I'm as white as you come. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Westmeath has an interesting story too because I believe one of my ancestors, a General Joseph Holt, was one of the leaders of the Irish Rebellion in the 1780s. And in 1788, the British captured him and shipped him over to Botany Bay as a convict. And he did his time in Botany Bay, got out and became a very prosperous sheep farmer. And he ended up buying some of Camden and MacArthur's sheep farm 
got very rich and then retired. And when he retired, he took most of his family back to Ireland. However, he left at least one, maybe two sons, I'm not sure, here in Australia. And a lot of the native Australian Holts are descended from that one or two brothers. And my family, actually, my grandfather was born in Westmeath and my family had lived in Westmeath for generations. And my grandfather joined the civil service and he was sent over to, in the British civil service, funnily enough, and he was sent to Africa where he became the postmaster in a place called Jinja in Uganda. And from there, he was promoted to postmaster at Kenya in Mombasa. And funnily enough, my mother's father, my other grandfather, was the postmaster in Gibraltar. So both my families have quite a long history of civil service and civil disobedience. <laughs> yeah. On my mother's side, my great-grandfather came from Malta. Now, I don't know if you know much about Malta, but Malta is quite an interesting place. It's the site of one of the oldest civilizations in the world, and there are old buildings there that go back before 2,000 years ago, 3,000. And my great-grandfather used to wheel a barrow around Malta, and then he went to Gibraltar, where he settled down, and then my grandfather became the postmaster there. And during the Second World War, my mother was posted back there because she joined the, the RANDs, the w Women's Royal Navy. Australian Navy, yeah. No, the Royal Navy. British. Oh, because we're still talking Britain, aren't we? Yeah. Anyway, she was seconded as an assistant to the Admiral of the Mediterranean Fleet. And I'm very lucky to be here because my father in the Air Force was on the fleet that was being sent to, I don't know if you know about the battle in Crete, but it was a very nasty one and thousands of Allied soldiers got killed. And my father could have been one of those. But when my mother found out that he was on one of the ships coming through the Straits of Gibraltar, she got the Admiral to stop the fleet, take my father off and get married. And then he was posted back to England, where he served out his time during the war in the RAF there. So, <laughs> it's yeah. a <powerful> woman. <laughs> oh, yeah, my mother, was. she was a power to be, I tell you. She, she was very active. She, used to, she was one of the early members of One Nation and very politically active as well. Funnily enough, when I joined One Nation, I was uh, talking to a guy, Peter Wise, who was also quite high up in the hierarchy of One Nation. And he said to me one day, he said, Holt, Michael Holt. He said, you're not related to Sylvia Holt, are you? I said, yeah, that's my mother. He said, <laughs> oh, he said, you come from good political stock there. <laughs> oh, well. So that's where I get my political leaning. My, my ancestor, General Joseph Holt, and they've probably been passed through the genes now to me. But I think what it all comes down to, these political leanings, is that we believe in the inalienable rights and freedoms of mankind. And when we see corruption and greed and hate and people being attacked for their beliefs, that gets my back up. And so that's why I got into this whole thing, because when I saw Gillard stab Rudd in the back, I thought to myself, there's something wrong here. And I wanted to find out what it was, and if possible, do something to put a stop to it. And so I think the work that I've been doing, basically what I found is that not only have I been helping educate people, but I think I've been helping empower people to believe in themselves. And I think this is a very important idea. A lot of people have been so beaten down by the system that they've lost that ability to feel the strength within themselves. It's still there but they just don't know how to activate it. 
So I think my work has been really to help empower people and help them to believe in themselves. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, not for me to disagree, really. it's. I think a lot of us are driven by something innate in our system and we just don't like people being picked on or attacked or hurt or things happen to us in our life and we didn't think it was fair for us in our schooling time. And uh, when we get a bit older, we start taking on that responsibility to push back at the system. And once we start realising how things just don't add up in the system, like we're told certain things in the education system. And I suppose essentially the education system's like the early form of media. Kids go to school and they're getting indoctrinated into that system. And then they go out as an adult and they're meant to stay programmed. But a lot of us start going, hang on, that doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense. And it's not fair. And and that's really what you've got. This is the weakness in the socialist system. They're all about politics and ideology, whereas mankind is not that kind of being. We, We are social. We are spiritual. And we want easy and good lives, but we're also prepared to fight for that. And I think a lot of people have lost that spirit of fight. But as the government cracks down harder and harder on a lot more people, they're starting to get their backs up and realise if we want to stay happy and free, we're going to have to fight for it. And that's what's happening now. We are starting to fight back and the government doesn't know what to do. Just this week when the grand jury was being announced for a few weeks in advance and the day before the grand jury was due to meet, the police, both state and federal, turned up at the Wenty Leagues Club where they were going to hold the grand jury and told the manager there, if you let this meeting go ahead, you won't have your liquor license anymore. And that's the kind of country we live in today, where the government is so scared of us that they won't let us do what we have a legal and lawful right to do. And that is to hold these bloody politicians accountable for their crimes against we the people. Yeah, and not only the politicians, the politicians are a part of the system that includes the media, it includes the legal system, there's so much to it. And for people who are still questioning, I think it's good to suggest or recommend that people be curious about what they thought they were told was the truth and question it and go, is that really the fact? Is that really what I was told? I was told these things as a kid. I was told all these things in the media. Am I a product of the media, product of the education system? And when do you start questioning that and start looking for examples that what we were told was not true? And here we are experiencing that on a regular basis and having dictatorship going, we're going to shut you down if you run this meeting. Yeah, that's just not that, right. That's fascism. We have an absolute right to freedom of speech. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. And I think these things need to be added into the Constitution. We need to have a referendum on that. And we need to be able to include half a dozen of the amendments that they put into the American Constitution, maybe the right to bear arms or at least certainly the freedom of speech. There's quite a good few amendments that they actually made to their Constitution, which ours was modelled on. But for some reason, we didn't include them back in those days. I guess we trusted the system a lot more back when the Constitution was created. And they didn't oh, think that exactly it would be, it. Yeah, it, they didn't think it would be overrun by an admiralty law system. Now, that was just cunning strategy on their part. But we're onto it. We know what they're doing. We know, hi, raise a flag. We keep watching what they're doing. 
catching them at their, at their illegal activities and they just continue on under colour of law. This is it, of course. Founding fathers actually looked at many constitutions around the world, including the American, the German, the Polish and several others. We didn't need to protect our rights and freedoms because we already had the 1688 English Bill of Rights. That does that. We don't need to amend our constitution. We just need to protect it and enact it, stand in it. And that's what, of course, what I've been trying to do with my court cases. And the Melbourne court case, they won't allow me to talk about the constitution on my rights. They've actually gone against it, that one judge who had me arrested, even though I'm protected by Section 80 of the constitution. So what did they do? They sent their police thugs to arrest me because I wouldn't obey him and kowtow to it. This is what it's all about. It's all about them standing over us and forcing us to do things that we don't want to do because we don't have to. But they are saying you have to, and it's colour of law. Anyway, look, man, I think that'll do it for today. Otherwise, yeah, I think we're done. Yeah, <laughs> might be getting great. out my battle axe like my Viking ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, raise the flag. All right, we'll wrap this one up, and I think we need to do a couple more at least. There's a few more things to cover here and talk about, and we haven't even got back into modern day yet. <laughs> I've spoken a lot about my search for truth and justice. I think we got up to my standing for election in 2016, but there's been quite a lot of water under the bridge since then too. Oh yeah, yeah we've done a lot of we've done a lot of warrior work since then. Since I met you back in 2020, and uh, yeah, it's uh, been fantastic. Yeah, all right. Well, let's wrap this one up, and uh, thank you very much for coming along again. And uh, it's what an adventure! Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, mate. Thank you. Well, good day, my fellow Australians. Probably been wondering how on earth did Australia end up in the mess we are in today? Well, it started a long time ago, way back in the late 19th century, when a group of people got together, called themselves the Fabians, and laid down a plan to impose communism on the whole world. They had seen how the Russian Revolution was progressing, and they didn't like what they saw too much violence. So they came up with a plan to slowly infiltrate governments around the world. And that's what they've been doing ever since then. They have now got their agents in governments everywhere. We can liken their plan to the frog in the saucepan as it slowly heats up, unwittingly cooking to death. It's almost too late for us, but we still have a little time. So it's up to each one of us to get involved to save our country from communism. If we are going to stop the crime, corruption and treason against us, we must first recognize the problem. After World War II, the Fabians had their man. He may not have realized it, but Bob Menzies contributed to their plans. He made out that he was loyal to the crown, but it was he who allowed the parliament to take the Queen's letters patent in 1960 and take control of the governor general. They overrode the Queen's letters patent with the fake kangaroo and emu seal. If you've ever wondered why the Governor-General doesn't serve us anymore, or the Crown, this is why. From then on, the Governor-General has served the Parliament, not the Crown. The next step in the Fabians' plan occurred in 1966, when Prime Minister Harold Holt went begging the American banks for money. They said, sure, but you must do two things. One, you must change your money from the British pounds, shillings and pence to US dollars. You can call it Australian dollars. And you must send your young men and women to fight for us in Vietnam. I was one of those young men. 
Then, in 1972, along came Gough Whitlam, a died-in-the-wool communist Fabian, and he took control of the government before vote-counting was finished, as he and Lance Barnard set up a duumvirate government, that is, a government of two men. And they proceeded to take the Queen out of the Royal Style and Titles Act and created the Queen of Australia. And they then started changing all laws to create a de facto Republic of Australia. They didn't call it that, but that's what they were doing. Fortunately, he was thrown out, and it took until 1986 for Bob Hawke to come along and continue his dastardly work. Bob Hawke enacted the Australia Act. He even brought the Queen over, but she refused to sign it. However, we know now that they both conspired to destroy our Commonwealth of Australia. I've read the letters they exchanged and she was complicit in the treason. So instead of signing the Australia Act into law, she asked Bob, have you had a referendum? And he said, no. She said, well, I can't do that. And Bob said, sure, no problem. I'll sign it into law. And he printed his name, Bob Hawke. That nullified the whole thing. It never became a law. The state governments are governed by the Australia Act. That is rubbish. They have no authority. So how do we know this? Well, you see this guy here? This is Dick Yardley. He was a farmer in North Queensland, and he was plagued by flying foxes who were eating all his fruit. So he put up electric fences to keep them out. The council came along and said, you can't do that. Take them down. The flying foxes are protected. So they took him to court. The judge ruled against him. The council stole his property. And now Dick lives in an apartment up near Noosa. He no longer can farm. However, after having his farm stolen, he decided to find out how that happened. So he spent the next 10 years writing this book, Australian Political and Religious Leaders, Treason, Treachery and Sabotage. It's 500 pages plus packed, listing all of the crimes and treason that the political parties have committed against us over the last 60 years. It's a massive book, but it's well worth having.